I've used my engineering background to come up with clever ways to be organized in the kitchen. I've used my professional cooking background to incorporate taste and professional techniques into home cooking. And I trained as a nutritionist during the pandemic when I had a bit of downtime uh, to understand what makes a complete meal and what is healthy for us. And that's a continuous journey as well. I'm still learning about uh, nutrition as, as one has to learn about everything. I think it's everything is always evolving. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. My guest today is a chef, but he wasn't always a chef. And we're going to find out all the other things that he does. He's multilingual. He has lived in I don't know how many different countries, but um, we'll talk about that as well. We met this summer at the Global Woman Summit, which is actually the Global Woman Summit, but he's a man. So welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Gregory Shah Jackson. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you for being here and for taking the time. And also thank you, Mirella Sulla, for getting us together. How are you? I'm great, actually. Today is a, a great day. I. Uh... I feel healthy, grateful, and uh, happy to be here. I think healthy and grateful are, they cover everything. Yeah, yeah. So you're um, also an inspirational chef, not just a chef. Thank you. Um, I, I I like being positive, I think, and and sometimes positivity can spill over to other people's lives. And, uh, and so, you know, whoever we encounter, whether it's uh, someone I'm cooking for or someone I just meet in the street, Beautiful, beautiful. Now let's start from the beginning. I read that you were born in the USA, but your first name is Shad, which sounds very Swiss. Um, and then Jackson, I don't know, that doesn't sound Swiss at all. What is your story? Well, I can also sound Swiss if you like. <laughs> um, then, then it's a bit more telling, but you can often tell by someone's accent where they're from and people often a little bit stumped by me. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I love talking about myself. I, I, I think that's the ego uh, that, that likes to be massaged. But um, I, did, I was born in the USA um, to an American father and an Austrian mother. And I, uh, they, they met in Geneva, in Switzerland. My American father was working out there Back in the days, the 70s, he was exchanging engineering information. He came from a General Motors sort of background in, in Detroit. And, uh, and he met my mother, fell in love with her. Um, and then when they were going to have me, he wanted me to have American citizenship. So he flew uh, over to the USA uh, so that I could have American citizenship. They popped me out and then flew back again to Switzerland. Ah. Where I spent I understand. So you were you, you were born in the US. So you have you yeah. That, okay, that makes a lot of sense. But you did you grow up in Geneva then? So I I spent the first six years of my life in Geneva, and I when I was two years old, I lost my father to cancer uh, to lung cancer. He wasn't a smoker. He was a very healthy man actually, uh, from. All that I know, and uh, and so my mother was a widow. Um, so I grew up with my single mother for for many years, and then in um, when I was six, she remarried to a Swiss man, oh. and this Swiss man was called Shad, and he adopted me because at the time my name was Jackson. He adopted me, but was happy for me to have both names of both my fathers as such, and so that's how my you know cross Atlantic name 
evolved. Wow. And it sounds posh to have a double name, doesn't it? I think that's perfect. <laughs> well, so that that looks, you're the double barrel too, indeed. Yes. <laughs> so, so where did you actually grow up? You said six years. How, how, where did you do your your schooling after you, after you left Geneva? So um, my stepfather worked for a Swiss inspection company, a, a multinational company. And so they sent him to South America, to Venezuela. And so I spent four years living in Venezuela. And um, as a young boy of six to 11, it was a dream. Uh, you know, there was jungle, there was beach every day. There was amazing fruit growing everywhere. And it was the, it was the glory days of Venezuela. You know, the economy was, was doing great. Petrol prices were good. Uh, everything was working. Um, so I had an amazing time there. I learned Spanish. And then he was posted to the United Kingdom. Uh, and uh, we lived in London. And we settled there and I spent all my educational years in, in England. And so that, that's where I, uh, I studied, uh, where I went to university and um, started. That my- is about as global as it gets. I mean, come on. It's, uh, it's quite global. I mean, it you know, I've covered Asia. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. So you studied engineering. That's right. I, because my father was of engineering background, I thought, you know, it'd be a good thing to study. I was more scientifically orientated as well, quite a mathematical mind. So that came a bit easier to me, even though I was good at languages as well. I wasn't as interested in in, in studying languages. So I studied mechanical engineering and management at Edinburgh University in Scotland. Uh, and I had a wonderful time there. So it's a fantastic city. If you've been to Edinburgh, it's, 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 you know, it's small, but it's also big. So as a student, it was a wonderful place. I, I made some great friends and uh, learned a lot about life and independence and about engineering. And so I, I did a master's there. And um, as part of my year abroad, my master's year, I went to Germany to Wolfsburg, which is where the golf manufacturing plant is and it's the largest or at the time was the largest car manufacturing plant in the world and i i, I learned a bit more about engineering and and i realized i'm not so sure i want to work in a factory town for the rest of my life so i uh, i got a postgraduate um course in cambridge university in manufacturing design and management so i was starting to sort of explore different avenues at that stage so when your oven breaks or your cooker, can you fix it yourself? So I am a very practical person. I I like to understand how things work. So I will definitely have a go. And I'm not the kind of person that gives up easy, easily. So I will keep trying. And, and I have at times just taken a whole device apart. And you're not supposed to. And so putting it back together, sometimes a bit more challenging. Um, but yeah, if it's if it's a, a, a general fault that I can identify, I will I will repair it. Yes. Where does the cooking come in and how? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, and, and that's maybe where it gets a bit more interesting for people because engineering isn't, isn't that interesting. So at, at Cambridge, I uh, was exposed to a lot of different recruiters and, uh, and, and, and job opportunities. And so I ended up uh, falling into management consultancy. So I worked for Deloitte Consulting um, and they had a fantastic graduate trainee program. So they sent me to Phoenix, Arizona to do training there, uh, back in the UK as well. And I got to see lots of different industries. Uh, I, again, I was sent to Germany because my German mother tongue. I worked for Bayer, was one of our big clients. Mm-hmm. And I don't have an answer for that. Alexa always likes to chime in. And fine, that's fine. Let her talk. She can participate <laughs> in the podcast. 
she sometimes might have something to add and so Bayer um, was a really interesting insight into a global multinational company and we were doing something called an SAP implementation which a lot of consultancies do and SAP is a global financial controlling system which ties in with inventory supply chain management uh, accounting etc etc and one day I heard the partners of of the company talk about the next SAP implementation and they were getting really excited about it and I was like I don't get excited about SAP and I certainly don't want to be like that when when I when and if I become a partner one day so I I was always into cooking I grew up with a mother that 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 cooked a lot she grew up on a farm and uh, where they her parents entertained royalty and, and diplomats from around the world in in the sort of 50s and so she was used to big banquets and entertaining and and so I was always around that growing up in Venezuela and in Switzerland and then when I went to university, I, I started cooking for myself and really enjoyed it. And I invited people for, for dinner parties. And so I was always cooking. And, and so there was always that interest. And when I was then at this crossroads at Deloitte, I thought, well, how about I explore that? I could go to culinary school and start again, learning that, that uh, trade. Or I could do what's called a stage in the industry. Um, and, an internship, yeah. An internship, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and that's very common in restaurants. And so I, I went to eat at Gordon Ramsay's uh, Royal Hospital Road, which was his flagship restaurant at the time, a three Michelin restaurant, and uh, had a wonderful meal there. And I said, I'd like to meet the the, the head chef. And Gordon Ramsay wasn't there the day, uh, that day, but his right-hand man who runs all his operations was. And I said, hey, I'd, I'd like to become a chef. What do I need to do? And he was like, ha, city boy, yeah? Yeah, come and work here for the day first and we'll, we'll see if you can handle it. Um, and so I was like, okay. So I, I showed up one day, had to buy a uniform, had to buy a knife, uh, 7 a.m. start. We had a, a little lunch break for half an hour and then we finished at midnight, 1 a.m. Uh, it was a really long day and it was a fantastic day. I learned a lot. I saw a lot. I asked lots of questions. They were like, shut up. We don't ask questions here. I mean, they said it a little bit less politely than that, actually, but I won't repeat those words. And, <laughs> um, and, and But I was, I was hooked. I, I, I thought, okay, I like this. And so I, I spoke to the head chef and he said, okay, well, you weren't that bad, but maybe the fifth best restaurant in the world, uh, what it was at the time, isn't you know, a best place for a novice to start. So let's start in one of our hotels. So I, I got a job at the Savoy Grill, which was within the Savoy Hotel. And it was, um, it was run for Gordon Ramsay group by Marcus Waring, who um, now has his own restaurants and also uh, is the judge on MasterChef. And so I did all my training uh, with the Gordon Ramsay Group for three years. It's like, a, it's, it's a bit like a, an apprenticeship, you know, like in Switzerland, you would do a Kochlehre, an apprenticeship, which would also be three years. That's amazing. That's right. So it, it wasn't a structured apprenticeship as such. So, you know, in, in, in as you say, in Switzerland and in Germany, um, this is very common. And this back in the day, this was a very common route to go into uh, these trades. But I literally just got a job there. So I, I you know, I, I gave hard. up my job to consultant and worked. And yeah. and the way the hierarchy is in these restaurants is very French and old school. So you start as a commis chef and then you go on to chef de partie, sous chef, um, senior sous chef and chef de cuisine. And so I, I had to work my way up the ranks and it does take a good two years but then in the third year, um, I was lucky enough to, to, to get to go onto the F word, 
with Gordon Ramsay. It was his first sort of commercial TV series. And I got to work directly with him. And that was really exciting. And then the opportunity came to go to New York to open his new restaurant. And so as an American citizen, that was a, an easy choice for me. So all those uh, citizenships and languages do come in handy at some point, don't they? Because my kids are, my kids grew up trilingual. And um, I also believe that when you grow up multilingual, you also easier learn another language because you already have this structure and this space in your, in your head. Do you agree with that? Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. Yes. I, I, I think some people might be more adept to learning languages because they're, you know, maybe more social and therefore we'll try. But you're right, it's a it's it's a training. Everyone can learn another language. Um everyone has to learn one language at least. And and so yeah, learning the second one then triggers something in your in your brain that, that makes it easier. An Austrian mother an American father, six years in Switzerland, then uh, studied in England, and then you went to Germany. And then you, in which language do you think? I get asked that a lot. Do you get asked that as well? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and my answer is always, I think, in the language that I'm talking in, because otherwise it gets way too complicated. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I still count in German when I have to count. Uh, yeah. So I did that for a long time. Um, I think I count in English because I did my education in English, especially yeah. mathematics. Yeah. Um, so I I guess I count in, in English because it's quicker. But if I'm counting orally in German, then, then yeah, German. it's interesting, isn't it? Our brain is an amazing machine. And I, I also yeah. like people like us who are, you know, who, who are multilingual. It, it, it's, it's everybody is always fascinated, especially people who only speak English, how fast we can switch. It's, it's like, or or we can say like, in, in one phrase, we can say three different languages and it works. Everybody understand us people understand yeah. each other. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Well, I think oh. there's a term for, for children that grow up in different cultures like that. It's called third culture kid. Um, and, it, and it's become more and more common. And it's basically where parents to each a different culture and the child grows up in a different culture as well. So you end up being exposed yeah. to three different cultures and therefore languages often. Hopefully that will create maybe a, a less racism and better people in the world and better understanding in the world. But I want to talk about food and the world afterwards. I want to know something else first. How did you end up on Al Dente? Because you were quite a few years. I don't remember now. I didn't write that down. But you were on the Radio Television Suisse Romande in a, in a cooking show in, on the Swiss national television. That's that's right. Yeah, um, I was on. I was. A chef presenter for for five years, and it was a really enjoyable part of my life. I really enjoyed that. Um, the the story of how I got onto it is 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 nice actually. I um I was always wanting to get into TV ever since I I worked um at Gordon Ramsay. I I I wanted to become you know a TV chef. It was it was a little bit of a dream when I was younger. I filmed a few demo videos and posted them on YouTube. So they were on, on YouTube, but I wasn't an influencer or into social media as, as I'm trying to be nowadays. So I didn't understand how it worked. So I wasn't building a following. It was just to have a, a reference point. And so one day I get uh, a message from my cousin and my cousin was working in Monaco uh, at the football club, uh, the AFC Monaco. And he was at the gala dinner and he was sitting um, next to a lady 
who was married to the medical officer for the team. So he was obviously friends with the medical officer or, you know, colleagues. And he was chatting to her and she was like, what do you do? And when I, and they were chatting and she was like, oh, I'm a producer on a, on a Swiss TV show, but I live here in Monaco with my husband. Um, yeah, I just lost a chef and I'm looking for a new chef to be on the show. And he was like, oh, well, my cousin's a chef. Um, you know, yeah, he's got some YouTube videos and she, and he, he showed her and she was like, He's perfect. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And he's Swiss. Oh, great. So um, I was living in the UK at the time. And so she contacted me. We had a little little chat. And um, and then I had a chat with the producer, with the the uh, the head of RTS um, for that division. And I was signed on. And um, and so we we filmed the show. We filmed all sort of, I think it was about 10 or 12 episodes for season all in one go in July. So I flew out in July and we filmed in front of a live studio audience. And then the producers edited over the summer and then released it in, in the winter. Um, and so I did that for five years in a row and, and it was a tremendous experience. It was a real family show and uh, a real family atmosphere also in, in, in the team behind the scenes. Now I don't get it anymore, but I used to have Swiss television here in Cyprus and it was on this, on the German channels as well. I said with the same name and I actually used, I remember I used to, you know, I, I think that I am quite a good cook, but I used to learn a lot because it's a very practical cooking show. It's not one of those you know, those, uh, those ex difficult ones. It's, it's where you actually learn something basic that you can use and actually cook afterwards. That's right. It, it, I mean, it's, it was gamified a little bit. So there's a French version, or there was at least, there was a French speaking version and a German speaking version. I had nothing to do with the German speaking one, only with the French one, but the French one was gamified. So there were contestants who could win prizes by answering culinary questions. But then there was a real big element of cooking where we presented a seasonal dish. And it was always a homey dish. It was something that you can recreate at home or that was traditional like you know in spain we did a we did a spanish paella um we did um beef wellington um which are fancy dishes but these are dishes you can't make them home and then we made tagines and you know casserole dishes mm -hmm. bourguignon things like that and um and so yeah and we did it step by step it was broken up so people who watched it always commented oh i tried that thank you you gave me a new tip and that was really rewarding to to get that feedback from the audience um about the show from the you know the week before or the, the year before yeah i mean i i totally that's exactly what i said i did learn stuff but also you know like when when i look at menus sometimes and i see when the menu is so long and there are so many different things in there it just puts me off you know because i i go through my and i don't have half of it and, and i think i don't know but i think easy cooking you know because we, we're all in a hurry always or most of us and and uh, i think and i think that's also something you do you teach people who who are who have little time to cook healthy food that's right um i I love cooking. It's been part of my blood for, for my whole life. And so I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family where my mother taught me a lot of things. But I think people are, are not always taught by their parents, especially cooking. It's it's kind of a lost tradition in some Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Yes. We also live in a world that's very fast paced where work becomes very demanding and we don't have time to cook. And 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 you know, we, we now are exposed to easier ways to feed ourselves through you know food delivery through ready meals there's a lot of options and amazing restaurants and that's you know that's great um 
But when you cook the food yourself, you know exactly what ingredients go in there. And and I and I empathize with you with regards to you know looking at a recipe and there's like 20, 30 different ingredients, it becomes a bit overwhelming. And and I think a lot of people I mean, you're, you're obviously a, a good cook, but some people... I mean, I'm just a normal cook, you know, I'm not, <laughs> not anything professional, but I like to cook and I always used to wow. cook for my family. But yeah, yeah. And half of it is confidence, actually. And so I think a lot of people who don't have that confidence do get overwhelmed and it's like, actually, it, I'd rather not try and cook. It's just so much easier just to get it in. And so that's what I've built a coaching program to help busy people who 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 are corporates because I used to be a corporate myself and so I I know that the the challenges one faces when one works sort of you know 6 a.m till 8 p.m and you run out of time how to cook food that tastes delicious because we all want to enjoy food if we're if we're foodies so if we like going to restaurants we we, we want to eat good food but that's also nutritious and healthy and filling and and quick. And so I'm, um, you know, I've I've used my engineering background to come up with clever ways to be organized in the kitchen. I've used my professional cooking background to incorporate taste and professional techniques into home cooking. And I trained as a nutritionist during the pandemic when I had a bit of downtime uh, to understand what makes a complete meal and what is healthy for us. And that's a continuous journey as well. I'm still learning about uh, nutrition as, as one has to learn about everything. I think it's, everything is always evolving. And so that's what I share with, with, uh, with my clients and, and, and I love it. Well, yeah. And I think it's important also to understand that it, it, it's a, it's very satisfactory. I find cooking, even if I have very little time, but I find I find it very satisfactory when I actually make something and, and it's made by me. And I also find cooking with somebody a lot of fun. It, it can be a very bonding experience. You're absolutely right. Yeah, especially with, I mean, with family members, it's wonderful. And so many clients cook with their children. So I, I, I a lot of my clients are men, fathers, and, uh, and they, they bring their children along. And, and so you see the child learning something new. And bonding, as you say, and and there is the reward element. I mean, you get to eat what you've created, so you get an instant feedback that you can, you know, self-criticize or have someone else say, "Oh, this is delicious," or mm, "Could do with a bit more salt." But you get the instant um, results and satisfaction very often because you know. Yeah, and also uh, yeah. talking about children, I think many people are afraid that their children could hurt themselves. You know, it could be either they could burn themselves or they could cut themselves. Or and I think the earlier you teach them and, and, you know, there are safer knives or there are safer ways. And when it's about heat, you just have to be there. I think you have to be a little bit more, um, how shall I say, you have to have the courage to let them, to let them make a mess, let them, let them do it because otherwise it's, it puts them off. If you keep telling them not to do this and not to do that, I think you just have to let them. I, you're absolutely right, and 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 I think as a parent myself, it's there's a little fear element always. You always want to protect your children, and I mean maybe this is a little difference between men and women. I think men very often are a little bit more willing to take risks, whereas women, as nurturers and 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 as mothers who've you know spent nine months minimum, um, you know, creating this child, are more protective and so want to remove as many risks as possible. But cooking certainly in a home is a relatively safe experience, especially if you're there to watch them. Yes, fire is a danger. Yes, knife is a danger. Yes, some machines could chop your hands off. 
but they're still there to be used and and with education and trying it in a safe environment is something I always try and teach my daughter, you know, when we're out and she finds something really scary or uncomfortable, I'm just there holding her hand, and, but she does it. And then when she completes it, I, I congratulate her and, and you feel a sense of, they feel a sense of achievement. And the same as with cooking, it's, it's mm-hmm. usually gratifying when you've gone through the, the the slight tribulation of, oh, this is hot. Oh, it's, it's it's wobbling over. Ah, okay, okay. I stir it. Okay. Ah, and then it's ready. Oh, it's good. Yeah, yeah. I think, and, and and that gives them confidence when you let them. I remember when my kids were small, and we used to invite the neighbors to make Christmas cookies. You know, Swiss Christmas cookies, spitz yeah. and this kind of thing. And I remember my kitchen in the flower, and my kitchen used to look like a battlefield. But it was so much fun to let them use this dough and to let them use those little forms and then to put it in the oven and it doesn't take long and then you take them out and eat them i think it's one of the best memories that i have with my kids oh that's beautiful and (laughs) it's interesting you mentioned mess that's the second time you mentioned mess and and you're probably a very neat person that likes things very organized in a structured manner so that must have been particularly hard for you to allow that mess to happen but you see the benefit and and you're right there's some people that I have an aunt, for example, she says, no, don't use those pans. They, we don't use those pans. I'm like, they're cooking pans. What else are you going to use them for <laughs> if not for cooking? Because they don't want to get them messy. What would life be all about if you don't use all the pans? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Or, or your kitchen or, <laughs> you know. A good one. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the world. It's a most memorable journey as we talk about travel. What is your favorite? Do you have a favorite food? area oh it's a great question um you mean a, a cuisine yeah a cuisine. yeah so i get asked this a lot um and i always say japanese food i love japanese food because it's it's a little bit like italian food but i mean hear me out because it's very different but it's based on really good quality base ingredients and you don't always have to do much to them to make them taste good and so you know sushi sashimi is a prime example of this very clean fish, very good quality fish cut perfectly, no seasoning, just soya sauce. And then obviously there's, you know, there's teppanyaki, there's meat dishes, there's um, different rice dishes, but it's, it's very clean, tasty food that hasn't had too much process added to it. And, uh, and I find Italian cuisine can be a little bit like that, a really good caprese salad, a simple mozzarella and a good, really good tomato, beautiful olive oil. That's it. Delicious. And, um, and yeah, I, I think I grew up around, my mother obviously came from a farm. I lived just outside of Geneva. I grew up in a, in a lovely big home with a massive garden and loads of fruit trees. And so I, when I was hungry, I just went out to the fruit tree and, and had cherries. I had apples, pears, apricots, plums, raspberries from the bushes. And so I was eating off nature's bounty, but not doing anything. I'm obviously, I like jam as well, but on bread, on sourdough bread, but then just pure fruit, pure vegetables, but just grown well at the peak of the season. It's beautiful. And uh, and so I appreciate that in every culture. So I mentioned Venezuela when I was growing up, there was so much fresh fruit there, every exotic fruit you could possibly imagine. And at every corner, there was a fruteria, um, a fruit shop, and they had uh, jugos de fruta, every juice you can imagine. So every fruit was juiced. And so I, you know, I never had Coke in my life. Never. I don't mm-hmm. drink Coke. I, my mother always gave me a fruit juice. Now, 
nowadays they're saying, well, fruit juice is also high in sugar. It is, but it's it's a yeah, little bit healthier. Different kinds. Yeah. 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 And and it's in, again in moderation. You, you don't have a liter of juice and then one go. You have a little cup and you get your vitamin C and, and it's enjoyable. Um, and so when I was younger, I was always drinking fruit juice and eating fresh, like a whole fresh mango, just like that. Mm. Um, delicious. Yeah, I can imagine. I can thinking think of a fresh mango. And you know, that's exactly the thing also. it's I think it's also important to eat what's there, what's in season, what is not, not all this. Like we here in Cyprus, we get avocados from Peru. You know how long it takes for an avocado to come from Peru to Cyprus? It has to stop over about at least twice. So, you know, what is your take on, on you know, seasonal local? I think we're we're finally coming back to that. We, we we do live in a global world. I think it's a double-edged sword. It's wonderful. You, you get food from all over the world. And therefore, you know, someone who hasn't traveled much gets exposed to foods mm-hmm. from other countries and they get curious. And, uh, and there's also nutritional factors. I mean, we no one grows avocados in the uk and so avocado is a fantastic food it's high in fiber it's uh, high in omega-3 fatty acids it's uh, it's got a ton of vitamins it's filling it's uh, it helps regulate your weight there's so many benefits and we wouldn't have that if we didn't have globalization globalization now I do also believe in local and seasonal. And so it's, it's, it's maybe it's again, it's the 80 20 rule. You, you, you consume 80% local seasonal and 20% can come from, from elsewhere, but no one really measures that. Um, so it's, it's about achieving balance on that element as well. I think it's, um, yes, there's the carbon footprint and, and I think we should be conscious of that. And there's also a lot of waste because sometimes these, they go back in, yes. in massive quantities and and because that's how they come and then there's a you know temperature change and some foods get lost so i subscribe to a um a service that delivers odd it's called odd box so the odd vegetables that mm-hmm. aren't, don't quite look right and some of them most of them are locally grown to be fair but some are imported as well so we get passion fruits and you know passion fruits aren't that popular so sometimes i'll, I'll have loads of passion fruits but they keep a long time and so i'll turn those into a, a little coolie or into a cocktail um and so there's it's it's fun to have that access but you're right we should be a little bit more conscious of yeah. The reason why I mentioned avocados is because we have local avocados. We have lots of avocados, but it's seasoned. They don't, they are all, they are like citrus fruit. They are ripe in the winter and then we just wait until they come again. And, you know, that's, of course, I understand in countries where you can't have something, you obviously use imported. Tell me when you travel, how do you choose your restaurants when you go somewhere? Oh, I, I, I'm one of these people who likes to research something to death. Um, and so with restaurants particularly, I, I love exploring. So if it's a country that I'm confident in or I know that there's just going to be great food everywhere, I'm very happy to explore. If it can be a bit hit and miss, then I would I would research it. I, I would look at reviews. I mean, we, we, you know, this day and age, we, we, we can access everything instantly and, and you get a good idea of of a place and I, I I'm very visual as well and so straight away if, if there's you know customers that are taking photo of the dishes I can see from the dish okay that's is that kind of cuisine it's 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 that much care has gone into it or you know it's it, you can tell a lot from real life images about a place um, I'm less about atmosphere and decor so one of my favorite restaurants in London is a hole in the wall sushi 
restaurant, the service is terrible, uh, really unfriendly, but the food is delicious and, uh, and it's fast. And that's, you know, I, I quite enjoy that. It, it really depends on the occasion, the mood I'm in, but food is the most important element for me. It needs to taste good. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It just needs to taste good and, mm-hmm. and be good. You know, and it can be very simple. can yes. be very simple sometimes. Have you ever had a really, really bad food experience? What is your worst food experience that you ever had? Do you have one? I certainly have had many, many bad food experiences. Um, two spring to mind. <laughs> one is the chain that's gone out of business, I think, Garfunkel's. Uh, that's I probably why they're going out of business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a student at the time and it was just terrible food and everything had to be returned. But the, I mean, that was a long time ago. Um, I try I try and erase bad food experiences. Um, obviously, there's the places you get food poisoning. That's terrible. It's difficult to sometimes trace it to a particular place. So I don't really remember those. Um, but <laughs> there was a train journey I took from London to Manchester and Stupidly, I ordered a pizza on the train, and that pizza was just horrendous. It was <laughs> it was flat, it was stale, it was uh, it was way too cheesy, but the sauce was too sweet. And everything was wrong with it. So well, yeah, but I guess some well, once in a while we just order a pizza on a train and then realize that we shouldn't <laughs> have. That's fine. That is life. Do you believe that food connects people? Do you believe that we could have if we if we made bigger tables and we ate more together, we could maybe get on better in this world? It's a, a lovely a lovely thought. I think food is convivial. It is communal. I think it's it's very important for micro. Um, connections so you know a one-on-one dinner with your partner or friend is is wonderful because you can chat over food and spend time i think as a family it's hugely important and again it's something that's being lost because a lot of conversations can take place around the table um i've been to a lot of gala dinners i've catered a lot of gala dinners and they're great social occasions but you only get to talk to you know this person and this person mm-hmm. So where's the benefit of increasing the table? Um, I I do think food is is a gateway to learning about a culture. And so you may know nothing about the other culture, but you get to taste their food and you go, I like this, or I'm not crazy about this. And and you get an insight. And, and, and very often, I think you're surprised by a, a local food. And it's interesting because it's slightly different. It's not something you're used to or... In the, in the best case scenario, it very much reminds you of your childhood. And, and this is what some of the best chefs in the world try and do. They try and create a dish that will instill sensations of nostalgia in, in some Emotions, yeah. Indeed, as you take it to a bite and you go, oh, this reminds me of my mom's lasagna when I was growing up. And, you know, I, when I was sad, she made this for me or, or whatever. And, and so that's hugely powerful. Whether it would solve conflicts and wars, I'm not so sure. Um, Maybe it would make them worse because people would be fighting over who makes the best. You know, like where I am, the, the same coffee is called Turkish coffee, Greek coffee, Cyprus coffee, Lebanese coffee. So, you know, it could it could create more problems. And and it has in in in, in history. I mean, there's, you know, the tea, tea wars and there've been there've been wars over certain foods, yes. Yeah. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you, because I've looked at the time and I told you those uh, for 35, 40 minutes are going to just fly by. If somebody wants to learn from you or learn with you and 
how does it work? Because, you know, if somebody listens to this now, and I told you at the beginning, I, I've got 127 countries now on, on, on this podcast, people listening from all these countries. Do, how would they get in touch with you? And how would you do this? Because, you know, if somebody from, from Australia wants to know what you do. Um, thank you for asking. I, I, I only currently teach in, in English, but I am looking to teach in other languages as and when those markets open up, if there's interest. And uh, I, I'm on most social media channels. I'm very active on, on Instagram, particularly LinkedIn uh, and TikTok. And so I give out a lot of free content there, um, some recipes, but mainly just knowledge about nutrition. And, 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 and I, I want to share when I learn, I want to share with people because life is short and, and, and you've got to take action now. And so I, I share something called the nugget of nutrition. Um, so I've, I've got a, a newsletter that people can sign up to for free and, uh, and, and, and hear that. And so that's through my social media. Um, I've got, I've got links that lead to my website and my, my program's called cooking smarter, not harder. And it's a six week challenge that people can sign up to and it's a coaching program. So it's really to see if we're a good fit. If, if someone already knows how to cook and just uh, wants to learn how to make the amazing beef Wellington and souffle, I'm not your guy. Um, you know, I, I, I want to help people who want to get a bit more confident, who want to specifically get healthier, um, save time, maybe save money as well, because I, I teach a lot of techniques to uh, bulk cook and where to buy, where to get good deals, and also how to get the most flavor out of food. And so if, if that's what someone's looking for, then check me out on cookingsmarternotharder.com and find out more about the program. Follow me on social media. I'm Gregory SJ on, on pretty much all social media channels. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'd love to help people. We'll put your, we, will put, we will put your website in the show notes because um, there is show notes with the um, podcast. And so here comes my last question. What does the family um, Shah Jackson eat on Christmas Day? Oh, nice question. So coming from a, an Austrian mother, Turkey was never really on the menu in the past. Uh, we used to have uh, duck sometimes or goose. That was mm -hmm. my favorite. Um, some Austrians actually have fish on uh, on on Christmas Day. Um, fish is is quite a Christian um, symbol, and uh, so we often had like a whole poached fish or goose. So goose was my favorite. I've done that a few times with my family, but. I, uh, you know, being in England for so long, turkey is is the 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 bird of choice, and so that's what I've started eating and really enjoy if it's cooked right. And uh, and so I, I also teach ways of making turkey taste really juicy and delicious, and then how to reuse all the leftovers because there's mm -hmm. always so many leftovers after a turkey dinner. So you can make a curry, you can make a burrito. Um, and this is where my global cuisine comes in because it's very similar to chicken. And so there's a lot of uh, options and I, and I like that. Excellent. Because that's one thing that I wanted to add before when you were talking about the coaching program, food leftovers, it's important to use. I mean, that's another thing that we do in this world. We throw away too much food and we should not do that because there are a lot of people who have nothing to eat or very little. So um, leftovers can be used. 
You're absolutely right. And actually, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that's really close to my heart, food waste. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 there's 63% of global food waste actually comes from households. We waste 1.3 billion tons of food annually globally. The USA is, is one of the one of the biggest, not the biggest um, culprit, um, but 63% comes from households. And so it's it's very often, you know, we, we get offers in the supermarkets, we buy too much food, it goes bad, it goes in the bin, or we cook too much because we want to be generous. And then what do we do with the leftovers? Um, so I love sharing tips on what to do with food waste, how to be clever with those ingredients. Again, my mother grew up on a farm and, and farming communities are very good about not wasting anything. And, uh, and so that combined with Gordon Ramsay, who is also very cost conscious, always thinking, how can we reuse elements of each dish uh, to either create a new dish or to feed the staff. Um, I, I'm very conscious of that and, and really don't like the wasting food, particularly, as you say, because there are people starving and we in the West have an abundance of food that we're wasting. Well, I think that's a perfect end to a wonderful podcast episode. Thank you so much for being on Most Memorable Journeys today, Gregory Shard Jackson. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.